Welcome. I'm Panayota Daphniotis, and I'm your host for an intellectual property podcast series brought to you by Dentons Canada. This podcast series covers a broad range of intellectual property topics on patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related IP disputes with an emphasis on the practical, giving companies of all sizes and industries the IP intel they should be thinking about. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There, you can access all of our intellectual property podcasts as well as an episode description for each topic and information about our speakers. And now, over to our podcast topic and speakers. Good day, everyone. My name is Panayota Daphniotis, and I'm a partner at Dentons Canada. And I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues and partners, Jennifer McKay from Dentons Canada, Carolina Del Rio from our Dentons Chile office, and Jenny Rudder from Dentons New Zealand. In today's podcast, we will discuss certain notable trademark trends and developments from each of our regions. Jenny, Carolina, and Jennifer, it's terrific to be with you again today, and welcome to our podcast. So, so maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll tee this off a little bit, and I thought I might start with some, some data, some stats. I always find that numbers tell an interesting story. And so, you know, according to the World IP Office in 2020, um, over 62,000 trademark applications were filed in Canada by a Canadian resident. Over 84, almost 85,000 applications were filed in Canada by a foreign resident. And well over 130,000 applications were filed by a Canadian resident in an IP office of another jurisdiction. And quite frankly, I think if I was gonna look at this from any other country's perspective, um, I think the data would tell the same story. Um, you know, in, in today's modern and global marketplace, trademark protection, trademark management are really integral to a company's brand identity. Uh, we know it's integral to their reputation. And that protection will require international reach and expertise. So the need for comprehensive and focused strategic advice and counseling um, to both domestic and, and international brand owners, I would say, whether they're, you know, SMEs or whether they're multinational corporations, you know, these owners of global brands, um, you know, these issues and understanding uh, of that international reach and that uh, having that international expertise in portfolio management really continues to grow in importance. And so to manage such portfolios and have sort of your finger on the pulse, if I could say it that way, of trends and developments in trademark law in other jurisdictions is key to trademark portfolio management. And hence, today's topic of discussion uh, and bringing all of you here together. So I think a good place to start uh, would be to, to, to highlight for our listeners some of the most recent and notable changes in trademark laws uh, in your country. And so maybe, Jenny, maybe we can start with you. And I, I'd ask you if you could talk to us a little bit about what you um, have seen and what have been maybe the most recent changes to the process 
for protecting a trademark in New Zealand? I think a good place to start is protection. Sure, happy to do that. Thanks, Paniyosha. I think the one I'd like to mention for New Zealand is perhaps the most practical one. And that is, you know, we have a really well-developed and sophisticated system in New Zealand for trademarks. But in the last few years in particular, we have been moving towards a much more specific description of goods and services for trademarks than used to be the case. Um, so we see a lot of overseas brand owners who are filing their trademark applications in New Zealand, either on a, you know, a standalone national basis or as part of an international registration. And the New Zealand market has been chosen as one of perhaps many countries. But they're getting a pushback uh, from our IP office and getting an objection. And that is because they've included really broad terms that are acceptable in other countries, but they're not okay in New Zealand. And some of the most typical ones are software, and software as a service. These are obviously really uh, incredibly busy areas of business globally. Uh, and we find that these kinds of terms are often coming up in New Zealand trademark applications. They used to be acceptable, but these days you need to be a lot more specific and you need to describe the kind of software and the kind of SaaS services you want to cover. Otherwise you've got a bit of a hassle because you have to appoint a New Zealand trademark agent to deal with the objection. We're also doing a lot of work at the moment in a lot, like a lot of people in the Web3 and Metaverse trademarking space. And the good news is that the New Zealand IP office is really good at keeping up with these new technologies and developments. And so, you know, it's a good, um, it's a good experience when you're trying to, to establish your brand in New Zealand for those kinds of, of goods and services in, the, in that exciting new space. Thanks, Jenny. And actually, you know, it's interesting to hear you make that comment about software and software as a service, because I remember the days sometime in the past where, you know, you could file a trademark application in class 36 for financial services and all you needed to say was banking services. And those days are long gone. So I think we've headed into the same terrain when it comes to software and software as a service. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, so Jennifer, you know, uh, maybe over to you now, we've seen so much change in Canada's trademark regime in the last few years, and um, I'm wondering if you can just maybe share with us uh, a bit of an overview from your perspective. Thanks, Paniota. I would just echo what Jenny said, similar to New Zealand in Canada, the requirement for specificity in relation to goods and services descriptions is pretty much I would say the, the harshest in the world. So we, we encounter many, many applicants who have filed international registrations designating Canada. And the one objection that almost every application receives is that the goods and services are not sufficiently specific for Canadian standards. So that is a huge issue in Canada and it, it can be extremely time consuming because we do get applications that were filed in other parts of the world with very broad specifications. And um, the Canadian office just uh, is, is extremely nitpicky and um, you're not going to get your application approved until your goods and services are very specifically described and basically anyone can figure out exactly what, what it is you're offering. And Jenny mentioned uh, computer software. That is a big one. In Canada, we see it all the time. I mean, there are some very old registrations that ex extend to computer software as is, but currently, you have to specify the function and area of use of the software. And also similar to what Jenny said, we seem to reflect, the, the, the IPOs seem to reflect each other quite well. We, do, we are seeing a lot more metaverse related applications and the Canadian Trademarks Office 
uh, seems to be well, actually, I cannot say that because they're going, they're not going to be examined for about three years. So hopefully, fingers crossed that they will be on, on top of that uh, uh, Internet 3 at the time when uh, the applications are getting examined. So, um, but also, as you said, Paniota, we have had new trademark legislation in Canada as of 2019. And it seems like we encounter more new issues on a daily basis than issues that we're comfortable with, right? There's just been so many changes. One of the big ones that I think impacts international uh, filers is that Canada dispensed with the requirement to have use in Canada in order to obtain a trademark registration. And that has really changed a lot. We're seeing a lot of uh, a lot more applications, I think, people getting defense, trying to get defensive registrations, a lot more people designating Canada because they don't have to worry about actually filing a statement of use in Canada. And you can potentially get a Canadian registration and never actually not only have to show use, but even state that your mark is in use and uh, you can renew it indefinitely if all goes well. Certainly, we still have the option to cancel Canadian trademark registrations if they're not in use for a consecutive three year period. But in reality, that only happens to a very small percentage of registrations and it's normally at the request of a third party. The Canadian Trademarks Office has such a huge backlog that they're trying to chip away at that they've recently advised that applications with all goods and services selected from the pre-approved list in the manual will be given preferential treatment. And this is a pretty significant um, um, option for, for uh, parties that are able to squeeze their goods and services into the pre-approved examples in the manual because the applications uh, they're using an AI tool to pull such applications and they're examined up to 16 months faster than applications which do not meet that um, meet that requirement. So that's that's a significant incentive for people that can do it to try to get their goods and services to, um, uh, to select them from the pre-approved list in the goods and services manual. Yeah, the, the list is long in Canada, that's for sure, in terms of developments and change. Um, Carolina, maybe, maybe we'll move over to you and talk to us about uh, uh, one or more key changes that have occurred in Chile uh, or that you'd like to point out more generally for Latin America that you think trademark owners should be aware of. Sure. Until, uh, well, in Chile, until the first half of 2022, any party could file a trademark application and constantly renew its registration without the need of proving its effective use on the market. This situation led to the existence of countless of trademarks imitating signs that were famous abroad but are now in our country, limiting future entries to the Chilean markets of these companies, which was absolutely unfair. But the good news is that some relevant amendments to the trademark law that will control the already mentioned are now in force, as they include the use requirement and the cancellation procedure for lack of use, which means that now the law allows that any interested third parties may require to the PTO to cancel the registration of these signs for not having been effectively used in the market during five years since they, they are granted. Another important amendment has to do with the elimination of the graphic representation requirement for filing a trademark, covering a broad spectrum of non-traditional signals that expressly includes mail, holographic, and 3G trademarks to the list. The amendments open new doors to overseas brand owners 
why? Because uh, considering that during many years they were not able to talent prior registrations and they were not able to get protection to certain kinds of signs as well, now that would be possible. They, they are going, it would be possible to do both now. So this is a good news for anyone who will be interested in filing trademarks in Chile. I would like also to mention that uh, in Chile, um, something similar to what uh, Jennifer was explaining is that we do also have a pre-approved uh, list um, that describe uh, goods and services. So if any, uh, any uh, applicant that is interested in filing any trademark in Chile and is not claiming any priority, use that pre-approved uh, description of goods and services that would mean that uh, that application would be faster uh, go to uh, go through the examination procedure. So uh, what would I say to everyone who is listening to us is uh, that if you would like to file in, in Chile, and that happened also in other countries of Latin America, a good option is to use this pre-approved uh, list of uh, goods and services. Thanks, Carolina. And, and the use of those pre-approved lists really, uh, as Jennifer highlighted, like in Canada, it'll expedite something, you know, by about 16 months, uh, an application by about 16 months, which can be really material for a trademark owner. So you're absolutely right, Carolina. I agree with you uh, that we really do encourage clients to um, and companies to use those pre-approved pre um, categories. Um, so, so we know that there are a lot of common elements between many different regions from a trademark law perspective, but um, you know, we also know that there are certain unique, uh, very unique aspects of trademark law that actually may not be intuitive to trademark owners. And sometimes these little you know, quirky aspects of the trademark regime in certain countries actually take brand owners by surprise. They might find it quite unexpected. So, I thought we might spend a moment just um, hearing about some of those examples. And, and Carolina, uh, since you uh, just had the mic, uh, I'll give it right back to you um, okay. and ask you to talk to us about that. Okay, thanks, Anagiota. Uh, well, uh, one of the most important issues that could I say in Chile is how we deal with indigenous intellectual property in the trademark space. And this has to do because we have recently um, celebrated the National Day of Indigenous People in Chile as our country has taken seriously the respect of their rights. Uh, but, uh, however, and it's important for you to know that regarding intellectual property rights in Chile, there are not provisions forbidding the registrations of trademarks that may correspond to either indigenous expressions, culture, or images, among others. Considering that our the PTO's criterion and this regard has been to grant trademarks using the name of indigenous people, such as, for example, Atacameño, Rapanui. They, they belong to a very well-known island in the uh, Pacific Ocean, Diaguitas, uh, uh, unless the trademark applications would be included in any of the legal grounds of non-registrability. That is, that they are descriptive, or generic, or that they are not distinctive. Therefore, there have been few cases where the PTO has rejected some trademarks applications considering that they are common use expressions as they refer to the name or denomination of any indigenous group. 
On the contrary, the Andean Community Countries Law, uh, which means Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Colombia, includes a specific provision forbidding the granting of trademarks that include any elements belonging to the cultural heritage of the indigenous people being very restrictive in this respect. Uh, thanks, Carolina. And so, Jennifer, what would you want to highlight in terms of, you know, what we can or cannot protect in Canada or how the Trademarks Office may or may not allow um, such marks, for example? Uh, thanks, Paniota. I would say that the, the biggest ones are the fact that there is no requirement for use in order to obtain a registration in Canada. The requirement for extremely specific descriptions of goods and services and the fact that applications can now be refused on the basis that a mark lacks inherent distinctiveness. That was brought into effect with our new trademark legislation in 2019, and Canadian examiners are cutting a very wide swath, or certainly have it at various periods, with that new objection. Where initially, it seemed like almost every application that had, it was comprised of dictionary words was getting an inherent distinctiveness objection. Uh, of course, the fact that it takes four to five years to obtain a Canadian registration in the best case scenario is another significant difference that I don't think many IPOs are experiencing at the moment. And I guess it's also worth noting that our opposition proceedings are quite complex compared to many countries and can take many years to resolve. And of course, the decisions are appealable to our federal court, federal court of appeal and Supreme Court of Canada. So it is not out of the realm of possibilities that you will be tied up um, in contentious proceedings for up to 10 years or more. Last but not least, uh, the province of Quebec recently implemented new legislation regarding the use of French in that province as, as the official and dominant language of business in that province. One big change uh, that came out of that new legislation is that one of the few ways to avoid the requirement for translating everything on consumer packaging and on public signs into French is to have a registered trademark. The legislation used to make the exemption for recognized trademarks as well as registered trademarks, which left open the possibility that even though your trademark wasn't registered, you could actually get an exemption if it was you know, I, I mean, the subject matter of a pending application or was a common law trademark. But as of June 1st, 2025, so they're giving a three-year window for you know, parties to get ready, uh, only registered trademarks will be able to benefit from the exemption. And because it takes so long to get a registration in Canada, if people are hoping to benefit from this exemption, they should definitely file their applications sooner rather than later. Yeah, and we are and we are seeing Jennifer rush on that because I think companies are recognizing uh, that the delay uh, from filing to registration is so long that they may not be able to make it uh, for the coming into effect of that uh, of that law. So uh, so that is a really important point in terms of planning. Um, and, and Jenny, so what would you what would an overseas business wanting to protect a trademark in New Zealand need to know or sort of find mo you know most interesting about your system at this point in time yeah i think one of the the most unexpected and unique things about the new zealand system is is a similar issue what's the same issue that carolina raised and that is how we deal with indigenous intellectual property in the trademark space and so Maori people are the indigenous Polynesian people of New Zealand, and they have their own distinct culture and language and customs. Uh, for overseas people, sometimes their first awareness of that is through the haka, which is the, uh, the tribal war dance, which is presented by the New Zealand All Blacks team. So if you're a rugby fan or a sports fan, you might have come across Maori culture in that context. 
Te reo Māori is an official language in New Zealand, just like English and sign language, and all trademark applications in New Zealand are assessed to see if they contain Māori words or Māori images. And if they do, they get sent straight to the Māori Trademarks Advisory Committee at our IP office. And it's the committee who decides and makes a recommendation about whether that trademark is likely to offend a significant portion of the Māori community. And if it is, it's probably going to be rejected and you're going to have to make some, some arguments to try and get past that if you possibly can. And overseas brand owners I have found are often surprised by this because they just don't have the awareness and how could they? Um, so to give you a, a, a hopefully interesting example, the, the English word pure has got an obvious meaning for, for us, right, in English. But what, what you might not know is that the same word is pronounced pure in Māori, and it has a very significant spiritual meaning in the Māori language. So a trademark that's got the word pure in it will get examined as if it is a Māori trademark. Uh, the same applies to the word mate in English, which of course in New Zealand and Australia in particular means a friend or a colleague. Uh, but it also uh, is pronounced mate in Māori, and it means death. And death is a very significant spiritual um, uh, you know, thing for Māori, not surprisingly, and it can be offensive if it's used in a trademark, especially for certain goods and services. Um, so it doesn't matter if a word in a trademark has a number of possible different meanings in different languages in New Zealand. If just one of those meanings is Māori, then that trademark is going to be assessed as a Māori trademark. So that, that's, I think, one of the most unique and, frankly, quite special aspects of our New Zealand trademark system. That is, that is, that, that is really interesting, Jenny. Thank you for that. Um, so I think maybe with that, we'll just go maybe to my last question, which is a little more, I, I guess, of an open question regarding what each of you might be seeing in your practices, irrespective of whether or not it's you know, unique to your country, um, that you think companies should be aware of or that you think you know, companies uh, should be or are considering. So, you know, for example, in my practice, we're spending a lot of time talking um, about the metaverse, like so many of uh, others are. And we're working with companies to plan, um, you know, expand sort of DJ, uh, digital retailing efforts. And I think, you know, 2022 is probably a year um, that's going to be more for sort of metaverse front runners from a branding perspective, let's say, but I think all brands will need a metaverse strategy soon, um, especially to reach these up and coming shoppers like Generation Z, who are kind of, I think, shunning, um, by many views, shunning traditional mediums in favor of, you know, gaming or social platforms. And, you know, it's not just a, a protection strategy or a strategy on how to draft the appropriate goods and services, but also enforcement, which, which will be really, um, very interesting to watch and important in the metaverse. And I think, you know, a comment that probably goes along with that, that's a little more of a general comment is I think our traditional legal tests for, you know, use of trademarks, uh, our legal tests for the concept of confusion, imperfect recollection, or, you know, what is the average consumer uh, and what actually meets the test of trademark infringement, I think will be challenged and I think will change or evolve significantly. Um, and will be impacted as we sort of navigate these questions of jurisdiction and choice of law in the metaverse. So there's, there's a whole bundle of really interesting trademark questions um, uh, for brand owners as they um, navigate and sort of unravel the metaverse and sort of define 
their strategy moving forward. So, so that's one example of, of, of you know, something that very interesting that we are seeing um, companies think of. And maybe while we're on sort of it from a Canadian perspective, um, Jennifer, you know, what else have you seen uh, from a Canadian perspective? Thanks, Paniota. Uh, I certainly second what you said about the metaverse. We're seeing lots of interest in the metaverse. And initially, when I heard about it, I thought, well, that's just going to be for the hardcore gamers. It's not going to catch on. But I feel so silly for saying that at this point, because I feel like absolutely it is Internet uh, 3.0. And, um, and everybody, I feel, is going to be in there for one reason or another. I have a client who has a number of restaurants and I said, well, we have to start turning our heads to the metaverse. And the client said, well, you can't eat in the metaverse. And I'm like, well, yes, that's true. But a lot of restaurant companies are filing applications because I think while we can't actually eat in the metaverse at this point, we can go in there to order our food and then it can get delivered to our real world address. So I think, uh, yeah, so many companies are going to have uh, needs in the metaverse, which is a, a really good thing to bring up. The only other thing I would want to point out for Canada is I do feel that our, our uh, register is getting very crowded. These days we're getting lots of new applications and lots of new uh, designations from international registrations and really, really broad applications because of the fact that you don't actually have to state that your mark is in use in Canada in order to get a registration or to even keep a registration indefinitely. Uh, so I really think it's excellent advice if you have interest or if you have trademarks that need protection, you should file now and make sure you've solidified your uh, your rights because it's uh, it's more important than ever, I would say at this point. Um, so Jenny, maybe open question over to you from a New Zealand perspective. Thank you. Yeah, look, I totally agree with what um, both of you said about the metaverse and about Web3. But there's also another issue that I wanted to, to mention. Um, and that is, and this is not unique to us, but in New Zealand, our trademark system is what we call a first to use rather than a first to file. And what that means is that if you're an overseas brand owner and you've used your trademark in New Zealand in commerce, uh, but you haven't registered it yet, so long as you're the first one to use it, like genuinely in, in the commercial sense in our country, you can usually stop someone else from registering it because you can argue that you are in fact the true owner of that mark and not them. And even if you find out too late perhaps that someone else has actually registered your trademark, you might be able to invalidate it and get your own mark registered. Now obviously it's a lot more cost effective and safer to register your brands in New Zealand early on rather than having expensive disputes later, just like Jennifer was saying. But you know, we're a small country at the bottom of the world and I know we're not always a top priority when, uh, when businesses, businesses are deciding where to invest their trademark budget. Um, your mark, you know, it doesn't have to be well known in New Zealand in order to knock out someone else. It just has to be um, first used by you. So this, it's actually quite a powerful thing. And I, I've certainly helped a lot of businesses with that um, when, you know, they found that somebody else has been inspired, a local company perhaps has been inspired by an overseas brand and they've taken it on as their own. But, but if they aren't the first to use it, then, you know, if you're the overseas business, you might still have quite a lot of rights in New Zealand that you might not expect. So yeah, we help a lot of overseas brand owners with that kind of work. That's great. And open question, last but not least, Carolina. Hi, thank you. I forgot to mention something that is very, very important, and it has to do that uh, Chile will be, as well as Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, part of the Madrid Protocol. 
Uh, and this is very important because we will mean a straightforward and faster way for uh, overseas brand owners to protect their trademarks in Chile. So that is something that is important for you to know. And the second thing has to do with Chile. Uh, I do not know if you're familiar with how is Chile, but it's a very long and thin country and has a long sea coast where shipment with counterfeited goods from everywhere arrive every day. So to combat, to combat piracy of the coast of Latin American country, it's not only a region government's problem. The collaboration of all the affected industry and companies is also required. And so in this context, I would like to highlight that there, uh, an anti-counterfeit Latin American alliance has been created as a private initiative to collaborate with the region's governments in, in the region to decrease the counterfeit, which means that customs authorities, police, public prosecutors, PPOs, among others, work all together providing technical information about their products and trademarks, registering the trademarks before the custom authorities, training the custom officers in order to uh, help them to identify when a product is faked or not, tracking illegal operations, seizing the products, and looking forward to obtaining the modification of the legal framework necessary to control illegal activities. What I would like to say is that in Latin America, counterfeiting is a very important issue because um, uh, counterfeiting goods are coming, are coming into the region through the port, uh, let's say Peru or Chile. So it's very important for any applicants that are, that are interested to come to the region to be aware of that. And we are able to help you to um, register your trademarks before the custom authorities and to uh, train the authorities to work with them in order to um, help you to um, identify if there is any counterfeit goods that would affect your uh, image, the reputation of your brand. And, and, and to prevent uh, to, um, the commercialization of counterfeiting goods. So that I think that something that you, you should be aware of. And that is why I, I would like to, to, to mention now. That's great, that's great. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, and this is probably a good place to, uh, to, to end today's discussion. But I think to kind of bring this all together, um, you know, like I said earlier, I think there's a lot of common, uh, there are many common elements between trademark regimes in different countries. Um, they have, you know, similar systems for registering, protecting and enforcing, but it is, of course, extremely important that brand owners also recognize and are conscious of the procedural or quirky nuances of different countries. Um, you know, those, those differences, as we, I guess, I think successfully highlighted today can be material. And I think they can impact, um, you know, how companies decide uh, to protect and enforce their marks uh, from a cross-border perspective and uh, do so efficiently and effectively uh, to protect their brand and their reputation. So, um, so I think with that, Jenny, Carolina, Jennifer, this has been absolutely terrific. Thank you so much for being here today um, and uh, for sharing your insights with our listeners. Our Denton's Canada Intellectual Property podcast series um, and further content on other areas of intellectual property can be found on the Denton's Canada IP webpage. Uh, so please 
uh, feel free to take a look or reach out to um, any of our speakers today if you have any questions on this content. So thank you for being with us and take care. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Denton's Canadian Intellectual Property Group has expertise that spans all areas of IP, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related disputes and litigation. Our speakers from this podcast episode or any other professional in our group would be pleased to speak with you about today's topic or any other IP topic of interest. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our IP series. Stay well. Thank you.